It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! All my guests laugh at me. <laughs> this week's starring special guest star, Mr. Tony Van Veen. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you, fake audience. Thank you, fake band. Welcome, Tony. How are you, buddy? <laughs> I am fantastic. It is 7 p.m., not 4 p.m. Right. Well, it's 4 p.m. where I am, dude. <laughs> oh, man. Let me get my chat window open so I can say hello to our people in the chat room. Vincent Nicotina, Linda Cullum, Gloria Covington, Stephen Spinner, Robin Thornton, Bridget Nicolini... Bob Gunnerfelt, Dean Turner, Robin Thornton, Darren Fletcher. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Our special guest is, uh, do you realize, I think you and I have been friends now for over 20 years, Tony? Um, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, it's mind-blowing to me, and you look exactly the same. Um, anyway, so... Uh, you mean I was bald early? Uh, I don't remember if you were or you weren't. It's just, look at this. No wrinkles. You, you look great. Uh, let me do your bio, just so for those of, uh, folks that didn't get the email that may be watching the show uh, in the archive version later. Tony Van Veen is a senior executive with over 30 years leadership experience in various aspects of the music and media industries, including digital music, manufacturing and operations, music rights monetization, and printing and distribution. He's currently the CEO of DIY Media Group, which is the leading U.S. platform of mostly physical media for musicians, authors, filmmakers, and other content creators. Their brands are Dismakers, Book Baby, and Merchly. Uh, oh, I left uh, Host Baby still one of yours, right? No. Oh, it's not. Never mind. Okay. Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> they provide... Baby, it's all good. They provide high-quality CDs, DVDs, USBs, printed books, ebooks, custom t-shirts, and other garments to certain types. Oh, to creative types, not certain types. I was going to say undergarments to certain types uh, who want to keep control of their IP rights, uh, maximize their monetization potential. Tony is also owned, and I'm not sure if you still own it or not, his own independent record label. Is that a long time ago, or do you still Yeah, that was, that was uh, back in the 90s, in the mid-90s. All right. Uh, I technically own it, but nothing's come out. Uh, no, no, no music has come out since the uh, mid '90s. And you're a drummer, right? Recovering. Right. <laughs> so he knows what it's like to be in the trenches, and that's what makes him such a great CEO. Uh, he's also been a friend of mine for and a confidant, I might add, for the last twenty or so years, as well as joining me for the occasional fishing trip. And we always have a good time. Uh, Tony's on the East Coast, and. Um, I'm on the West, so sometimes, like, I don't know, every five, six, seven years or something, we will uh, fly from our respective points of origin and meet in Miami or Fort Lauderdale and go fishing for a day and then fly home the following day. And it's always fun, including the last trip. Do you remember you caught a baby sailfish? No, it wasn't a sailfish. It was a, uh, I forget, but it was not a sailfish. A marlin. A fish. So I, I just saw a picture of you sitting on the back of the boat. You caught a tuna, and I caught a. It was some other fish, but it had no. It had no. It had no sail. I thought it had a bill. No, no bill. Or uh, maybe the bill was the thing that I paid the captain. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so 
friends for 20 years. How come it's taken this long for you to get me onto Taxi TV? It's, it's, this is a career highlight for me. <laughs> and so it should be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I don't know. We've just recently started doing the split screen stuff. And the first couple times we did it, it was a little shaky. So I've been afraid to um, ask anybody who I hold in such high esteem to join me and then have it be a technical meltdown. Um, Steven Spinner says sailfish run up to 70 miles per hour. Yeah, but now that they've gone all electric, I hear that they're a little slow off the line. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do today, uh, as Tony has mentioned in our emails going back and forth, is you get the two of us talking and we will cover a, a very wide range of subjects. But uh, he's actually put together a list of the seven mistakes that musicians make. Um, but just before we do that, I want to talk a bit because um, your career, I mean, you're like, uh, you're the kind of guy that marries a woman and stays with her forever. And that's a good thing. And, and the same thing with, with disc makers. It happens to be true. I know. Uh, you're, you're a good family guy. And, and disc makers, you went there right out of college, I think? Yes, I did. 1987. And what was your first job there? Um... I was I was brought in um, as the assistant of uh, to Morris Ballin, who was the owner of the company, and it was a bit of a hybrid of customer service, sales, and marketing. He had me put together some marketing brochure back in the days of vinyl and cassette. Uh, many of your listeners and viewers have probably over the years received and seen disc makers catalogs in the mail. This was before we had a catalog and we had just a sell sheet with these cassette packages and um, and I, I had to put one together. So we did not have the cassette sell sheet. We had a vinyl one and I put together a cassette sell sheet and answered phones. I mean, look, it was a small entrepreneurial company with 30 some employees back in the day, including the people in the factory pressing records. So you did what you had to do, you right? Know, right? And, and eventually you became VP of marketing, if I remember correctly. And that was about the time that I met you. And then Morris retired or semi-retired and you became president of the company at some point. So it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it, 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 I'll try to tell the long circuitous story as succinctly as I can. So. You know, we started growing. When I started, the company was mostly pressing vinyl records for record labels, which means commodity pressing, low price, low value add, and slow pay by the record labels. It was really a brutal business to be in. But in the mid-80s, you know, kids like me had started to be able to record our own music because of technology that we, you know, companies like Mackie that started building and creating and selling more affordable recording gear and speakers and mixing consoles came went from you know the size of a mattress to something that fit on a desk <laughs> and and so kids like me for 25 30 40 bucks an hour could record our own stuff and morris had realized wait maybe there's a business opportunity here with this type of client and so he hired me i had been the client and we put together these packages and um started learning how to market our services to independent artists who were looking to get product released. And 
you know, that started, we started growing. Long story short, when the CD took off, we really took off uh, from, a, from a sales growth perspective. And then uh, in, in 1999, um, a little company called Napster came on the scene and we looked at that and I was like, holy moly, if, if we don't figure out as a company how to do this for our clients, offer this to our client and help them make money with it, we're going to be a dinosaur. And um, of course, 1999 or 2000, there was no money to be made from downloads. There was no, you know, Napster was all peer-to-peer -peer sharing. There was no revenue model attached to it. And so what I did instead, there was this little company called CD Baby, also happened to be founded in 1999, that at the time was just an online record store for independent artists. Artists could send them five copies of a CD. The owner, Derek Sivers, would put them on the store. And then when people would come to the store, he would sell it to them. And uh, there, was, there was no way to make money from downloads until 2004 when Apple launched the iTunes store. And when Apple was getting ready to launch the iTunes store, Derek Sivers from CD Baby took the bold step to digitize every single catalog, every single CD in his catalog, in his warehouse, put them on a couple of hard drives, deliver them to Cupertino, where Apple is headquartered, and all of a sudden, CD Baby was now also in the digital distribution business. And so our clients now were able to get their product onto iTunes. 2000, that was 2004. 2006, Morris, back to your original question, Morris Ballin, the original uh, yeah, co-founder. Correct, thank you. Was the owner of Dismakers. He was in his upper 60s. And like a typical entrepreneur, um, he had wealth, but he was cash poor. The wealth was all tied up in this growing business that he had. And he decided that as he was getting closer to retirement, he wanted to take some of the proverbial chips off the table. And so he sold a majority share of the company to private private equity group and private equity groups you know they buy a company for a certain price they hope it grows and then five six seven eight years later they hope to sell it at a higher price and make a profit and so the private equity guys came to me and said listen you know you don't just have to grow through marketing uh, if there are any companies you want to buy let us know and maybe we could do it. we can help with financing etc and so I'm like yeah I know and, uh, you know, I would, uh, every time I spoke to Derek Sivers on the phone, every so often, you know, three times a year, at the end of the call, I'd say, hey, Derek, if you're ever a seller, you know, tired of running this baby, call me, I'm a buyer. And so in early 08, he called me, we ended up making a deal. And so in August of 2008, um, you know, we end up acquiring CD Baby. So now CD Baby and this makers were sister companies. And, and you make your being a little too humble because if i remember correctly knowing both you and derek very well at the time um uh amazon was also in the hunt uh and interested and ultimately he went with you which i thought was a great feather in your cap and i think he did that based on the fact as a matter of fact i know he did that because he told me that once in with confidence back then <laughs> but uh not now um that, that he entrusted he entrusted you to not screw it up you know i mean that was a brand that he built and he wanted to yeah. to be in the hands of somebody that gave a damn so it was the exact same client right right that this maker's client needed cds 
and in order to get their music out and they also needed to get their music out digitally onto iTunes back in the day and uh, and so there was a there was a perfect fit the companies had a, a greatly similar ethos of serving the independent the emerging artists and so that that worked really well <clears throat> and then you know fast forwarding you know the company in 2010 with Amazon Kindles everybody getting ebooks for Christmas we're like hey you know let's look at this uh, it's the same thing that CD baby does for musicians let's do this for authors and so we launched a company called book baby um, and you know the 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 company was sold in 2012 again the, the whole company to a different private equity group and then in 2019 just this past April uh, the company was sold again um, to downtown uh, music, music but they just bought the CD baby side so they they were they bought the, the digital brands you know they're a digital company and all this messy physical stuff uh, with the big iron that has to manufacture it uh, they were not interested in that and uh, I was like you know what uh, I need a day job and I happen to <laughs> I happen to like what I do and I also happen to feel very very strongly that with today's streaming economy monetizing streaming for an emerging artist is exceedingly hard because the payouts are so small and so there continues to be an important role for physical product the compact disc the USB the vinyl record merch like t-shirts are, are I think disproportionately important you know as a part of the overall revenue mix today compared to even in the download era when you know and download album that you sold on iTunes for $9.99, the wholesale price that the distributor would get and the, and the artist ultimately would get would be $7. But now you're seeing, you know, payments per stream of four-tenths of a cent. And so it, it becomes, you know, three-tenths. I, I looked it up recently, um, you know, for, for my, some of my old music, and, and it ranges from, you know, Four tenths of a cent to, you know, a penny per stream. Um, but the, the companies that pay a penny have no streams, right? Right. <laughs> uh, right. Spotify and Apple are, you know, probably ninety-eight percent of ninety-five percent of all the streams that you see, and they pay, you know, between three tenths and four tenths of a cent. Anyway, long story short, that's how we got today. I teamed up with my exec team. We decided this is a good opportunity. Books are growing quickly. Merch is growing quickly. CDs are declining slowly, um, but still exceedingly important. And and there's still volume. We made 30 million CDs last year. Wow. So um, so we thought this is a good opportunity. Artists need this. We know this space, and we know the people. And there's 240 people working right outside Philly at our at our plant because you know a lot of people and these are my people and so we decided let's go we'll do this CD baby and disc makers continue to be really close partners we have a strategic partnership uh, and you know they use us for disc manufacturing we use them for digital distribution for our clients and all is all as well that's great so you and some of the executive team are now shareholders uh, of you guys bought it out uh, 
fr from the company that originally owned both sides. Okay. Right. Cool. Well, kudos to you. You know, um, you're really, and I'm not saying this to stroke you, but I, I've probably said this in private to you. I've always been more than a little impressed at your business acumen. You're, you and I are both passionate readers of books, mostly business books, and I think you've retained a lot more than I have. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, I, I do love what I do. You know, and and what's what's really cool and and really pretty amazing in a way is you know I was a musician thirty years ago, right? I was playing in punk rock bands, and so many of the questions I get from musicians today are the same questions that I had 30 years ago and that I got early on in my career. And, you know, the music industry has changed completely, the tools, the formats, but, but, the, but the passion and the drives and the questions that artists have to this day, you know, are, are, are unchanged over the decades from what they had in the past. And so, I guess that's good because it allows me to remain relevant with my <laughs> old school 30-year-old musician experience. Um, and of course, I've read a thing or two and, uh, you know, I've been around the block. So, uh, you know, that passion, you know, for the do-it-yourself spirit, helping artists, you know, get from here to here to the next point is something that I think has, uh, you know, has, has fueled me for these 30 plus years. That's a, people often ask me, why'd you come up with the name Taxi for a music company? I say, because we helped you get from here to there, like a taxi. So, yeah, yeah and, and you and I have always, uh, every time we're together socially or on a fishing trip or whatever, the vast majority of our conversation, once we get past, you know, how's your wife, how are the kids, and we get through all that stuff, we immediately go to the musician side of things because we share so many probably the same people uh, but the same questions the same problems same hurdles so with that in mind let's move on to um, Tony's list of the seven mistakes most frequently made by musicians and uh, I, I had come up with one as well just to try and save him from the work but his is really good so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through his seven and then maybe hit a couple of mine and then talk about a couple of other things and then open up the floor to some Q&A. So what is your number one or number one on the list um, mistake that you've seen musicians make over and over? Well, you're, you're going to think that I'm pandering to you because of the business that you're in. Um, but this was and this was actually one of the things that I learned at my first taxi road rally, some 20 something. How, how many years have you been doing the taxi road rally? This will be the 23rd. Yeah. So some 20 years ago. And, and so my number one item, and this is the number one piece of advice I give artists, is they don't spend enough time truly studying and learning song craft to be able to write really, really good songs. And, you know, I, I see this in my factory and I'm walk, you know, I'll walk by and I will see you know, uh, a CD that looks great and I might want to listen to it or I have, I'm at a conference and, a, you know, somebody hands me a CD and I'm like, wow, that looks really interesting. And nowadays with, with digital recording technology, it's really easy to technically create a great sounding recording. And then you pop it in and it sounds great and the lead in sounds promising and then the song just doesn't go anywhere. And, and, uh, there's 
there's nothing that's as big a turnoff for me as a song where you know the chorus doesn't sing or you know it just doesn't it's it's just not a good song right so, yeah c plus is are, not good enough yeah and there are resources like taxi i mean the first taxi road rally you know i went to i had already my band had broken up and i was working at this makers in marketing and you know i i, I remember sitting there and you know, with a with a panel of Steve Seskin kind of deconstructing Beatles songs and doing his stuff, and like my mind was blown. And I'm like, if I had known this stuff when I was writing songs, you know, I might be making music for a living instead of selling music for a living, right? And um, and and so you know, I mean, that ship had sailed already by then. But uh, uh, you know, I think that that artists think they're shit doesn't stink as far as the songwriting uh you know goes and many artists are uh less than appreciative if you tell them their songwriting isn't as good as it needs to be i'm sure you might have heard that once or twice and, uh, and <laughs> you know and, and so so you know my one of the things i've said time and time again you know is a great song does not guarantee success but a mediocre song guarantees failure absolutely right so uh, that's to yeah. me and that that's the number one thing you know a mistake that artists make i think is just they think they know it they think their songs are better than they actually are and they don't invest they don't listen to the top songs in their genre and 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 try to extract from there what makes them magic I, I think it's really difficult for people to listen to their own stuff objectively, and their family and friends generally aren't going to be that obvious or that honest with them. And truth be told, is most family and friend member family members and friends can't do it. So by comparison to what they could do, you're a genius. Yeah. But they're not holding it up to the same bar that consumers would be or the industry would be. And you know, making something. You brought up an interesting point. The technology has gotten so good that virtually anybody that wants to invest a little time in, in learning the, the gear can make great sounding product, but the song is the root. And so they've got stuff that sounds pretty polished and well produced, from, but the song's just not there. So yeah, yeah I completely agree with you. Um, your number two thing on the list was pandering to the kind of music you think will sell rather than doing and playing what's really inside of you. You've seen, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, right? I mean, art, uh, there are artists who want to be popular and they want to be big. And so they choose to play in a genre, whether it's, you know, hip hop or pop or, or, or something mostly those are the genres that are big nowadays EDM at its day right uh, dance music will always be popular and so so they they try to create music in a genre that, that might be slightly different from what they what they really are and what they really like and you know I, I feel that leads to not creating the best kind of music that you possibly could and you know as hard as it is to make it as an artist today and as hard as it is to make music to make money from your music with streaming um i think your odds are best to start start in your niche right start 
what you are, playing your kind of music, and become the biggest thing in your kind of music, right? Become the biggest, you know, surfabilly band, right? And then from there, when you're when you're big in your niche, then you can start kind of polishing and tweaking your music a little bit to be a little more broadly accessible, and then start pulling in some other fans from outside. Metallica did that 25 years ago, right? They started yeah. this undercover, underground metal thrash band, and no radio play, no nothing, and they built up a rabid fa- following, and eventually their sound kind of morphed uh, a little bit, became a little more accessible, and you know, Enter Sandman at some point in time got on the radio, and it just blew up, and they're they're the biggest rock band in the world today. Uh, you know, all starting from a really narrow niche, where a narrow slice of metalheads and punk rockers, you know, were into them, and they took it to the biggest rock band. It's a tough decision for a lot of musicians because they want to gain national or international fame. And so they're kind of in this position where they feel like they've got to chase what the flavor of the day is. And I understand that, but you're right. They're not doing what comes from their musical soul, what they're highly competent at doing. And I've had people say to me, well, my kind of music hasn't been popular for 25 years. And so they're looking for the day where the two things intersect, when, when the public and the industry want what they're doing. And they might be 55 years old and thinking, gee, I'm going to retire in 10 or 15 years. Uh, they're not 24 and capable uh, or desirous of going out on the road anymore. So I understand the frustration that if they wait for the industry to come around to what they're doing, it may all be over. But you brought, you had one really key word in what you just said, which is the niche. And, and you and I both know as marketing people, yeah. um, you know, be the king of your niche rather than trying to be the ant of everything. When I have artists ask me, you know, what, what should I do next to keep moving forward? And I ask, what genre are you? And they tell me pop. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Uh, you know, the bar is so incredibly high in pop. You know, the, 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 the song craft, the recording values. There are, there, are, there are not many slots in the top 40. How many slots are there in the top 40, Michael? I'm going to do the math and say 40. <laughs> so, you know, here you are, an unknown aspiring pop singer. And... You know, you have to get there, and you want to be pop. And I, I, I can't, I can't give you enough advice. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. If you're in a, in a, in a niche somewhere, you can say, hey, you know, play together with other bands in your niche. Play the kinds of clubs where they play. Get some radio play on some on some internet website, web, web radio, or some college stations. You know, uh, get reviewed on a couple of blogs, build up a fan list in your niche, and then blah 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 blah, and build on that. But if you want to be pop, boy, the, the the bar is so incredibly high. Not pop, pop singers make it, but um, I I couldn't tell them how to. I am somewhat heartened that. There's a wider range of stuff going on in pop these days, although the vast majority, probably 80% of it, is very beat-driven, dancey pop with relatively vapid lyrics. I have noticed, um, there's been a trend now for about three years where 
choruses aren't as obvious and don't pop out, pardon the pun, to the extent that they used to in our day. The, the, the traditional songwriting style of writing just a boom chorus, they're a little yeah. more subtle now, but the craft is equally as good and they're still as appealing. But And, and I, I might say specifically with pop, formulas are equally uh, structured and rigid in many ways right yeah. when you listen to a and r guys and what they look for uh, they are in a box that's really tight and that's what they're looking for and our guys have almost become um chemists if you will and i'm not going to mention any names but there are some that are very very prominent really big people in the industry uh, presidents of subsidiary labels and what have you and, and a&R back in the day was you know, somebody that listened to a lot of demos and found stuff that sounded like it was going to be a hit and decided to roll the dice or not. Now um, they will look for somebody that builds great beats and put that together with a top liner and put that together with a vocalist and the vocalist isn't working, sorry, you're out. And they literally just and moved eight, these... Eight other songwriters. Yeah. Right? Uh, working together. I mean, <laughs> if you look at some of these pop and, and particularly hip hop uh, credits, publishing credits, you know, they could be 15 songwriters credited. You know, they're going to need a bigger that. stage for the ASCAP and BMI that. awards just to fit all the writers on the stage. Yeah. But, exactly. Uh, sometimes I hear stuff and go, you know, regardless of the fact that it's factory like and that there's so many people involved, I do hear some stuff and I go, wow, this is truly amazing. It's groundbreaking. Um, and, and you don't find it on radio all that often. You, you really have to, you know, curate lists from other people's curated lists on Spotify to find it, but it is out there and there's some great music. So I am heartened by that. Uh, number third, the number three mistake on your list is not offering enough value to fans. Play great yeah. shows, make great music. Let's talk about that, because I don't so, think a lot of musicians think about offering great value. They just, this is my music. Do you like it or not? So, uh, and, and that's true. And, you know, there's nothing to me that's a bigger turnoff than I'm at a concert. I shouldn't say nothing. I'm sure there are other things that are bigger turnoffs. But, but uh, I'm at a concert, and I'm playing, I'm watching some act just go through the motions. Or they're scowling at the stage sound guy because, you know, they're like this, you know, making faces. And I'm like, these people are not having a good time. How are they expecting me to have a good time if they're not having a good time? And so, you know, I, I, I don't like the concept for artists, especially in the artists, of the word fan. Because fan implies I'm up on stage, you the fan are down there looking up at me with, you know, adoring googly eyes, worshiping me. Instead, I always tell them, don't think of them as fans. Think of them as customers. Because if you want to make a living from your music, a transaction has to take place for money at some point in time. Whether that is a stream or a concert ticket or a t-shirt that gets sold, you need create value for your customers and how do you do that give great shows like put your heart and soul into it you know look at a guy study a guy like tom jackson who is this live stage you know craft guru 
um, who does who does incredible work. Um, write great songs, obviously, and then make high quality recordings. You know, put them on vinyl with great liner notes and artwork. Um, you know, make your concerts into memorable experiences. Uh, you know, communicate well with your uh, you know, with your fans, through your newsletters, what have you. These are all things that to me are valuable as a fan, as a customer of, of the band. You know, I was at a, um, I was at a concert um, earlier this week um, and the headlining act was Revolution. You know, it was, I think, the biggest reggae act in the country at this point in time. And they're a Dismakers client and a CD Baby client. And the lighting on stage was so phenomenal that I'm like, wow, this is really big time. Like, like it was like a big time arena rock show, except, you know, in a hall that holds a couple thousand, um, just, just from the lighting. And, uh, and I felt I got great value for my ticket. So that's what I'm talking about. Make, create wow experiences, whether it's live or pre-recorded or on social media or what have you that that really give your customer i.e. your fan good value um you open this up by talking about uh so many people so many musicians think of uh you know them on the pedestal the fan down below um how do you I, i've been asked this question frankly i don't feel like i've ever come up with a great answer in 27 years of running this company because you're you're more expert at the live um cultivating a live experience and the customer base in that world so maybe you've got a great suggestion that i couldn't come up with and that problem is breaking the ice initially because at some point you become revolution and you've got a, a following and people show up at the shows because they like you, they know you, and they want to come in and take part in that value proposition. But for a brand new indie act or an unknown indie act, uh, it's so heartbreaking to me, and you've probably been to more of these than anybody I can think of, the infamous CD release party, where they blow their whole marketing budget if they even have one on the CD release party, and they get a friend who is a so-called publicist and they bring in some pizza and some beer and they put up some streamers and some balloons or whatever they do to try and make it a party and the whole thing is is a little sad i've walked out of some, several of them feeling really bad for the acts what can they do it starts with i think my premise number one you, you have to actually be good to start with right you <laughs> yeah, have yeah. to, be able to give a good show. Now you can work and develop all that, but I would bet that the, the, the release parties that we've both been to that are a little like, you know, they're kind of sparsely attended, you know, and and the music is like, eh. So they're, they're missing one or two essential pieces to the puzzle. You know, you have to write great songs. You have to know how to give a good show. I mean, I have, you know, I've been to, I'm sure you have, numerous concerts where the opening act just blows away the headliner. Why? It frequently, the opening act doesn't get the pyrotechnics and the fancy lighting. They just play their asses off. And they, they interact well and they're passionate. And so, so 
you don't have to be fancy. You don't have to get fancy or it doesn't have to be expensive. You just have to invest in all facets of your craft and and people want to be entertained, Michael. You know, they, they, they when they go to a show they wanna they wanna see something that, that they can that can uplift them, that can take them that, that they can take home and feel good about. So that's that's what I'm talking about, how you how you add value, offer value as an artist, even how when, did, you're, when you're an opener. How do they break in, though? Uh, the, what's the launching pad for a new act where, you know, basically they're relying on word, the, a very small fan base and some word of mouth from their rabid fans, which might only be 20 to 100 people. And... Yeah, you know, they've got to have the opportunity to kill the show and do a great job. And I've never been able to come up with some good advice because it all goes back to value proposition, which is you put up posters, you send out social media, you do all this stuff. What makes you different than everybody else or better than if they're not already familiar with you? That's a toughie, huh? It could be any, look, it could be any of it. And um, I think you you may be steering yourself blind on the fact that you know on the question of good enough, you know, and and many acts are not good enough. But um, you know, where wherever you are, whatever scene you're in, whether you're hip hop or EDM or punk rock or, or you know some you know gospel. Uh, there are there are frequently local scenes there are networks there are other bands you know get to know them you know hang out go to shows of your genre talk to the promoters at some point you got a demo if you got a demo you'll get a gig that's your opening right and you may have 20 fans or you may have five fans and then the goal is to be impressive enough as the opening act that you can turn those five fans. That, uh, a, by the way, tell them your name when you're up on stage because too many artists don't do that. And then <laughs> I've walked out of concerts like, oh, that first band was really good. What were they? What, were, what was the name? <laughs> um, you know, I've turned to people next to me at a concert say, hey, what's the name of this band? And they're like, oh, I don't know. So, um, you know, start, start there, start in a local scene. And then when you get that shot, you know, ask people to, you know, send you an email which allows you know from stage hey grab your phone send me an email I'll get you on my mailing list all of a sudden you're getting email addresses now that's the start of a fan list and you know every you're not gonna go from you know zero to hero overnight right there's there's only one little Nas X right who went literally from an unknown to like 18 weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, I think 19 weeks ago. Like it seemed like in a week, his song yeah. came out. Billboard kicked him off the country charts. TikTok videos started happening. Next thing you know, he's number one on the Hot Country chart. That is lightning striking. And for the rest of us mere mortals, um, every little thing that you do has to just inch you forward, and it has to build on the last thing. You get, you know. You, you get a gig, you get some email addresses, you ask people to follow you on Facebook, next thing you know you're communicating with them, you get another gig, you 
get some more fans some of your existing fans come out you build some more fans and so on and so forth you start putting out some demos you put something up on Spotify you offer you know a free download for in exchange for more email addresses though the download is also kind of going the way of the dodo bird um, and, and 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 then you put out a release and then nothing's probably gonna happen right you're underwater on that release financially but people are starting to stream it etc and it's lather rinse repeat right every next release every next single builds on the previous and it's just you're taking baby steps upward and upward and upward and upward and I think that's one of the things and um, I, I had it uh, on my list and I know that you had it on your list as well getting discouraged too soon or giving up too soon because an artist hasn't made it whatever made it means nowadays because an artist hasn't made it after three releases hey welcome to the team most of us haven't made it after three releases right so but i understand it gets discouraging uh, i understand it gets expensive but I think this is one of the things where many artists are, uh, are, are they have unrealistic expectations of how fast they're going to achieve success. And when it doesn't happen that quickly, then they become discouraged rather than being encouraged with the incremental progress they're making every day, every week, every month, they become discouraged that it's not going in leaps and bounds. It's like any other business. It's extremely rare that anybody launches a business that takes off overnight. The vast majority of businesses die within the first five years, and those that survive, incremental. It's all about the increments. Yep. And, and most people just don't want to do the work um, because basically, as you and I both know, it, it's pretty much if you're awake, you're kind of working. Uh, I mean, sadly, even when I go on vacation, I find myself oftentimes working like four hours a day. I can't tell you how many times my wife and kids have been on a ski slope and I say, I'll meet you out there at lunchtime because got to do what you got to do. So here's the thing, right? As an artist, you should love your work. And you should love, like, I love my work. I'm there for 30 years. I better love it. But, you know, I and but but there are aspects of my work that I don't love. Right. If somebody is a poor performer, they need to be in some kind of disciplinary program. Um, God forbid, terminating somebody. Those things are not lovable. Um, but you do them because they're part of the big picture. But, you know, 96 percent of what I do. I. At the very least, like, if not love and. Um, you know, as an artist, and this is one of the other things that that's also on my list, mistakes that artists make is they don't pay enough attention to the business side, right? You, rehearsing is f nothing but fun. Writing is nothing but fun. Recording is fun. Performing is fun. But the business side is work. Calling promoters, calling club owners, trying to get Blog Creative people aren't wired that way and they all make the mistake, all, 95% of them make the mistake of my music is so good, I love it, so somebody who, is, you know, somebody else is going to love it and they're going to take care of all that dirty stuff that I don't want to do. 
like selling or like uh, social media stuff or calling uh, bookers, all yeah. that stuff. Because yeah. I'm just, you know, I can't do that. It screws with my creative brain. So, so here, and the thing that I'm, that, that I'm saying is, I think for starters, that's all about mindset. And your mindset is so important in this business. And the thing that I've learned is and and i know you agree with this michael because you feel the same way we've talked about this the business side in many ways is just as creative as the music side whether it's communicating writing an email or whether it is coming up with a strategy on how to get into a club or get a blog review or 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 you know any any or communicating with social media it's all in its own way it's it's just as creative it just taps maybe a slightly different set of neurons in the brain, but artists are really fortunate. It's a gift to be able to write and create music. And it's, it's one of the most creative things you can do. And most regular people who are not artists, who have day jobs, don't have the good fortune to tap into that level of creativity. And so because of that, many artists believe that the regular creative work that you do, writing newsletters and, th and things like that, are, are just drudgery, which they're not. You just have to set, set the right, put the right cap on and set your mind straight. I was talking to my, my CFO, my vice president of finance the other day, and, and like to me, accounting is like the most boring, mind-numbing stuff. And, and he's telling me he loves that accounting is such a dynamic, creative profession. I'm like, good for you. I just hope you're not creative with the numbers, right? <laughs> but, but I mean, so he's in the right spot, and he, he this this is exciting to him, and and so it's all in in your perspective as an artist, and and because of that, artists don't pay enough attention to it. the 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 other thing is, you know, nobody else, if you don't want to do this, nobody else has as much at stake as you do in your career and if you're not prepared to do this hard work how are you going to expect somebody else to work as hard and put as much passion and energy into it and and you you know you may get lucky you may find somebody who hits a home run for you but by and large my thinking here is you have to really do it all yourself as much as possible for as long as possible um, for you to give yourself the biggest best shot with one exception contract <laughs> right contract. <laughs> uh, social media in some respects is the big lie uh, because the promise was you know you, you you build a following on social media and it just keeps growing and growing because it, you know it's logarithmic in its growth but Yet people don't, they would almost don't go buy a book on how to do social media effectively. They don't develop a social media plan and stick with it. It's, they probably spend more time trashing other people on social media than actually executing their own social media plan. Like which, you know, what, which colors work best for what you do? Um, you know, videos or graphics, all those things are things that you can learn and perfect and incrementally improve to help build your audience. Social media is a great tool if you use it right. 
but I think most people just think I'm going to tweet once or twice a day and say, yeah, this guy sucks, you know, and I'm part of a posse here. Uh, everybody thinks he sucks. I think he sucks too. But that's not building up. That's not selling your brand. So let's, that's, a, that's a perfect transition into the next item on my list, which is not communicating enough with fans. And when you communicate, not communicating authentically enough, right? I mean, why are we friends? Or why do any of us have friends? It's because you make a connection with somebody. You get to know and see the real person. And if you as a performer are constantly on and you're not prepared to show who you really are as a person or be vulnerable from time to time or be real, and, you know, real could be dropping F-bombs left and right. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter what real is. Real is the real you. If you're not prepared to channel the real you in your communications and be real, it's really hard for people who are like-minded to come in and, you know, and, and, and relate to you. And that's ultimately, you know, people like to do business people that they know and people that they like and if you want to do business with your fans you have to get them to like you you know I'll, I'll give you a, a just a slight little aside every every Saturday I do a quick YouTube video uh, called the indie music minute and it's you know it's it's advice and tips for artists um, and one of the reasons I do it is because I know people feel and realize this maker is a big company. I want them to know that, you know, the buck stops here. We're real. I'm real. And, you know, it, it's, it's been, it's been really rewarding because I get emails from, from artists and YouTube comments all the time. Um, you know, they, they might comment on my shirt that I'm wearing, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a human way to communicate and, and put a face on the and so artists need to do the same thing. The other thing is not communicating enough, right? If you, if you have this gift of social media, because it is a gift, because back in the day when I was in a band, gosh darn it, we were literally licking stamps to mail our newsletter. Yeah. And literally in 1985, we had like 300 subscribers to our newsletter and we would Xerox copy newsletters and lick stamps and mail them. When, and, when I first started Taxi, Deb and I would sit at our coffee table until midnight or one or two in the morning, hand addressing envelopes and putting stamps on them. So, yeah, I get it. You have this gift now with social media where you can actually interact instantly with people from all over the globe. So, so do it and be yourself and don't be an asshole. Right? Don't be a troll. <laughs> be, be be engaging. Be appreciative. Remember, they're not fans. They're potential customers, right? Um, so, uh, and, and then there's just communicating enough, right? Uh, social media is good. I think only 20%, probably less than 20% of social media posts actually get delivered. I don't know how often you've had it where, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something on somebody, you know, somebody might have put in, a friend of mine might have put a link in their Facebook post and I'm like you know I'll come back and I want to read that article later and I'll come after work and I'll look up that friend and there will have been like 
since that post, like three posts that I never saw. Mm -hmm. They never got delivered. I think 80% of uh, your, your, your followers and your friends on Facebook and the like do not get your posts delivered. So if you want to communicate through social channels, usually at least on Facebook you have to boost your post you have to pay to boost your post if you want to see if you want to be broadly visible um, let's, let's uh, divert for a second talk about email versus social and I, I think you'll agree yeah. with me that um, for taxi email you know some people look at us like oh you guys are Luddites because you still rely so heavily on email but you know what email works infinitely better for us than social media because social media is our is our mutual friend Ariel Hyatt has said for many many years people don't go on social media f to buy something um, correct they're not correct. there for that reason they don't pull out their wallets when they're on Facebook that that's absolutely correct so you know I you've if you've ever played golf and I'm I'm not a golfer uh, but once or twice a year I'll hack you've heard the saying you know drive for show, putt for dough, right? So let's change that to social for show, email for dough, yep. because that's how it is. You know, uh, as an artist, and artists tell me this repeatedly, I can't sell my product on social, but when I have a new release and I put it in an email and I put a call to action there, like click here to buy, I am selling stuff. So email, as much as we're in a social world email is still the best way ultimately to reach a broad audience and have an opportunity to sell them but it shouldn't just be sell 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 right if all your messages are buy my cd buy my cd buy my downloads buy my t-shirt go to my spotify link go to my youtube very quickly people will either unsubscribe or even worse just tag you as spam and Right. So you have to offer, you have to communicate enough and you have to offer something of value back to value, be authentic and talk about what, whatever, what is value? I don't know. You know, are you pro Trump? Are you anti Trump? If that's your thing and you have fervent opinions, it's okay to leverage that. You may turn off some people, but you know, you can't please everybody in order to win. You have to be prepared to say no to certain kinds right. of things. And, um, but that creates rejection and everybody's afraid of rejection. You know, if we could eliminate the fear of rejection, Gene, there'd be a lot more successful musicians and creative types in general. You know, there. it's 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 actually hard. Uh, I'm sure you've faced it. When somebody tells you on social media that you suck, it's really hard not to be hurt by that. It really takes practice. You have to be told you suck really often to stop <laughs> caring that people tell you that you suck. Um, <laughs> it's true. Why is it that they're so, it almost feels like people, that social media attracts a certain type of malicious person versus people awful. who, you know, want to do something wonderful in the world. Why is it? Why can't social media go the other way? It blows my mind. Uh, there is a sense of impunity that people seem to get when when doing it, it, you know, when when being on social media, I, look. But I got it in, in email too. You know, when I, uh, I, I got it. You know, we have the, the this maker's email list. They put the post out. 
you know, with my Indie Music Minute link, and I put my own email address in there. So if artists want to reach me directly, they can reach me directly. And you know, one guy just writes, "Fuck you, you asshole, you suck." I'm like, all right. So I I replied to him, "Love you too, buddy." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, Bob Gunnerfeld says, Joe Walsh says, you suck when you begin, keep sucking until you don't. There you go. Joe Walsh, one, one of the great um, social commentators of our time. I love that guy. All right. So I think I think we're, we're through six. So we had a top seven. So I'll give you yeah. my seven. And then you, I think you had your seven. And there were a couple on there that, that didn't quite overlap. Right. So so my, my number seven is not asking for what you want and more specifically not asking fans for what you want them to do i've been at concerts i might have bought the merch but i walked into the club i missed that the merch booth was way off to the left side and i walked out not ever knowing that this band that i like had merch so you know be up on stage and tell Tell your audience, hey guys, you know, we got merch in the back, we got CDs for 10 bucks. Right after our set, I'll be back there autographing. Because that's another little thing, if I can kind of, uh, you know, take a little tangent for, for a quick sec. Yeah, sure. The, um, you know, people, people ask me, Tony, you know, cars don't have CD players anymore, computers don't have CD players, who's buying CDs? And I'm like, I don't know, I made 30 million last year, right? Um, but but here's the here's the real thing. CDs are no longer a carrier medium for sound. We all have this on our phone, and every every practically every song ever recorded uh, is instantly accessible to us. So what you are selling is the experience and the opportunity to meet you. You're actually not selling CDs for ten bucks. You are selling autographs for ten bucks. Mm -hmm. Right? The CD has become a souvenir that the fan can take home so that five years from now when you've blown up and you're playing arenas they can go hey I met Michael look at this he autographed this I met him way back when and so it's a souvenir you know and 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 it's cool every time they look at that CD even if they never play it because they're listening to it on Spotify which is actually not bad. It's the best use of Spotify, right? They gave you the tenth of a penny, and then you get three tenths of a penny every time they still listen to it. That's so, um, so, so that's you know, that's why people, you know, still buy physical. Fans don't like to support the label, but they love to support the artist, and they like they happily support them by if they like the artist and they were blown away by the show by buying some merch at the end of the, at the end of the set especially if you're there to meet them because that's again authentic it all enforces reinforces each other right it, that allows you to communicate authentically to have a one-on-one -on -one, to shake a hand to take a selfie and uh, with a fan and so so it all reinforces itself and so and it's not just stand up on stage and tell fans to come to your merch table you can do the same in your email newsletter you can you know ask people on social media to go to your YouTube or to, you know, do do whatever. So it, it's just 
if you don't ask you're not gonna get but if you ask you just might get it you never know I had a great uh, example of this remember Doug Minnick our vice president for many years at taxi so yeah. on rare occasions Doug would go with me on a business trip and we went to Minneapolis I believe to meet with um, it's a chain like Oh, Borders Bookstore. We got Borders to put an end cap of unknown independent artists that Taxi curated in every Borders store in America. And we went there to meet with them. And you to, put Borders out of business. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you ever want to kill a company, just ask me to buy like 10 shares of their stock and they will go bust. <laughs> I'm famous for that. Um, so Doug went with me to go to that Borders meeting, and I figured as long as we're going to be in Minneapolis and freezing our butts off, might as well do a taxi one-day seminar. So we booked a, probably a Westin ballroom somewhere, and we had like 300 people show up for this thing. And it might have been the only time I ever said from the stage, if you'd like to join Taxi now for a $50 discount, go see Doug Minnick standing back there in the back corner of the room. And he waved his hand like this. And we sold like $3,000 worth of memberships. Yeah. Whereas every other time I went out on the road to do those seminars, I'd do it by myself. And I never asked people to join right then and there because I didn't want to handle, you know, seeing they're filling out the apps because um, we had to back then. It wasn't like you could pick up your phone and do it. But it, it, you're so right on the money that if you don't ask, you don't get. It's marketing parlance, right? Yeah. You have traditional direct marketing. You have to have an offer. Hey, uh, you know, my CDs are 10 bucks, my shirts are 20, but buy them both for 30. You have to have an offer, and then you have to have a call to action. You have to tell them what to do. And that's just basic direct marketing 101. But people are afraid to do that because they don't want people to dislike them because you try and sold me something. Or, but they don't understand that you're actually kind of sharing the good news with them. Yeah. If you believe in what you do and if you've identified and connected with your audience, you're not imposing your will on them. You're actually turning them onto something cool and you get paid for that. Right. It's just mind blowing to me. Um, if you do it, look, maybe maybe we can, we can add a number eight. Sure. Many artists are too afraid to step outside their comfort zone. That's people in general. And people in general and artists specifically, right? And so the thing that I tell people that I work with is the more you get outside your comfort zone, the bigger your comfort zone gets. Hmm. And, um, and, and, and it's the same way with artists. If you don't, you know, if you don't try it, you won't get the sale. So try it. And if people throw eggs at you, then try it a different way the next time, right? Uh, but nobody's going to throw eggs at you. And so... So it's just try things that make you slightly uncomfortable and see if it works. What was that quote again? Because I plan on stealing that. Um, if, if you, uh, the more you step outside your comfort zone, the bigger your comfort zone gets. I'm going to use that in my marketing, if I may, for the Road Rally, which is coming up November 7th through the 10th here in Los Angeles. Uh, one thing that keeps people from not going to the Road Rally, even though they hear great things about it uh, year after year after year, it's like that would take me out of my comfort zone. I don't want to get on a plane from Atlanta and fly to Los Angeles and walk into a building with 2,500 people. That sounds scary. I won't know anybody. I don't know anybody. Yep. 
And is it? I think you commented the very first time you came to a road rally. You pulled me aside at the end of the weekend and you said something like, "My brother, you should be proud of this because I've never seen so many musicians come together in one place that felt so warm and friendly and supportive of each other versus competitive with each other." And that was, you were right on with that observation. That is, I didn't, I couldn't bake that into the cake. It just kind of happened on its own because of the nature of our customers, I believe. Uh, but that's what makes the Road Rally special is that supportive vibe. So, yep. yep. So let's go to your list. What what did we miss? Um, I, I think that we had a lot of crossover, but I wrote my number one was not knowing who you are musically. That uh, one of the things that really makes gets my ire up is when I meet a musician and say, what kind of music do you do? And they don't have their elevator speech ready, but even more importantly, they don't know who they are musically. So they want to please everybody and be all things to all people. And they go, I do a little rock, I do a little pop, I do a little country because they think that that is going to make them attractive, which it might for a production music library, if you're doing instrumentals, you know, having a few genres that you do really well is a good thing. But if you're trying to get signed to a record label or get on radio or a playlist on Spotify or um, just anything, you need to be one thing. And you're, you're right on the money when you said be that thing that you're best at. And then again, it's getting out of your comfort zone. Once you've built a fan base, a following, uh, then you can expand your horizons because there's trust they trust you to deliver quality music to them. So yeah, it might be something a little different, but I trust you not to screw it up. Exactly. Um, not knowing, number two was not knowing who your audience is, where they are, how to connect with them and being afraid to sell to them, which we've covered a lot of that. But uh, I wanna specifically address not knowing who your audience is. Even if you only have five customers, five fans, um, I'll bet you there's similarities among those five people. So what are what is that similarity? What are those similarities? And where can you find more of those people? Um, uh, this is, I'm going to say something that I don't, I don't want any emails or, or letters or phone calls about this, but very apropos to the sad things that happened over the weekend with the shootings, the killings. Um, a good friend of mine just bought a hunting rifle with a big scope on it. You know, it's the kind you take out when you're hunting like for mountain goats or something, you know, from a, a thousand yards away. And he asked me a couple months ago if I would meet him at this range and be his spotter and tell him, you know, you're three inches off center at two o'clock. You're an inch and a half off center at six o'clock so that he could zero the scope. So it was kind of a weird day to go to a, a gun range after what had happened. But I noticed something uh, really that I kind of want to share with everybody, which is the people at the range were, there were families there with moms and dads teaching a kid how to shoot targets with a 22. There were husbands and wives maybe there for self-protection. Um, it, it was a real cross-section of people. It wasn't kind of the Bubba redneck types that people normally associate maybe with, with guns. But the interesting thing was, because there's been so much said about the, the hate rhetoric and, and um, the divisiveness, probably 80% of the people there were either Hispanic or Asian. There were very few Caucasians at this range. There were hundreds of people. This was a big place. 
So I can't even remember now. Uh, oh, it's about. I, I was going to say, uh, how does this connect? Because to you know what, they all had something. In, because they all had something in common, and I remember having that thought that this was a tribe. And that's what your goal is, is somebody trying to sell your music, is identify who your tribe is, what they have in common. And the reason I brought up the gun range from this past weekend was where do they congregate? Because just putting it out in the ether and waiting for them to find you, like, you know, uh, particles of steel finding a magnet, um, put some thought into it and figure out where they congregate. You know, if I were somebody that was selling, I don't know, gun cases or ammunition or t-shirts, um, you know, I, I would go to that range. Well, where do the people who listen to your type of music congregate? Because the internet is awesome for that. They do congregate in certain places. You just need to pay attention and figure out where those places are. What I found, if we can turn this away from guns. Please. <laughs> Yeah, a little uncomfortable. <laughs> what I, yeah. what I found, um, uh, you know, is as an artist, the the one of the best early ways to do that is to look at what are the other bands in my scene who, uh, you know, I play or would play a similar genre, or the same genre of music, and. Um, you know, I I had uh, um, I'd heard I don't know 10, 15 years ago a great tip from Brian Mazzaferi, who was a client of ours. I fight dragons. I remember I was, I was on a panel with him at something yeah, uh, that you hosted once. Um, and um, you know, he said that uh, he would they play this thing called chiptune, which was basically making music from like with like Nintendo game sounds. And he said that they would partner up with other chiptune bands and they would actually cover each other's songs. So he would cover with his bands the, a song from one of the other bands and vice versa. And then they would each reach out to each other's email list and say, hey, we covered this band, you know, this, this song by this band, check it out. Or even better, they covered our song check this out and then you know they would they would you know this was again this predated streaming but it was like hey you know give us your email address to listen to it or what have you and then uh, it, it added names to the mailing list of like-minded people and allowed kind of a level of natural organic cross-pollination uh that that allowed both bands to grow their fan I was, I got to say, I want to give a shout out to Brian Mazzaferi because being on the panel with him, I was in awe of how much common sense and then the work behind it that he applied to, to build that band. Uh, it was just like, dude, if you could package that and get all other artists to do it, anyway. And, and, and you know what the, the, the amazing thing is, you know, every, so many artists still aspire to being on record labels, in particular on a major label. He got signed to a major label within nine months, and he said, in the end, it was the worst thing because he, before he got on the label, was spending as much, if not slightly more, on marketing his product and his music than the label ended up spending. Wow. And except when he was independent, he could buy CDs from this makers for a dollar and sell them for 10 
when he was on the major and he wanted to sell CDs at his gigs, he had to buy them from the label at wholesale for seven dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. So, so you know, the I, I think I think they're clearly still, and we're off on a tangent again. There clearly still is a role for labels, but I think the main value that labels add is on the independent side. The independent labels that actually are, I think, the only ones pretty much that do any more artist development. We probably uh, run more listings for indie labels now at yep. Taxi than majors. We still run a lot of uh, artists on major labels looking for songs and our members still want to get their songs cut by those artists. But as far as people wanting to be signed to a major, you know, the, the jig is up, as it were. The majors don't do artist development anymore. The majors buy artists and indies, right? You know, a little Nas X has an organic hit and there's like a scramble of majors to sign him. Um, because that's low-hanging fruit. It's easy. The name's already out there. So let's spend some money on it. Absolutely. Um, my number three was not building a brand around yourself and your music. Um, if you walk up to 10 musicians and say, give me your elevator speech, describe your music. At best, in most cases, you're going to get, I do a little rock, I do a little pop, I do a little country, rather than them saying, um, I'm a rapper like Nas X. Uh, at least that gives people a point of reference. You don't want to exactly, you know, replicate somebody, but you could say I'm in that ballpark, in that wheelhouse, two of our favorite words in Taxi's listings, because people need a point of reference. So they need to know, you can't just say I'm the greatest friggin' artist in the world and expect them to, oh, well, then I've got to have some of that. I'm going to get me some right now. Um, my next one was not developing a business plan before you launch or even before you write and record your music. How many times have we both seen people save their money fastidious, fastidiously for two or three years and then they go record their, their magnum opus and they press up a thousand CDs and a year after the release, 875 of them are sitting in their garage in boxes collecting dust. That never me, happens. Never happens. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> they all sell. <laughs> that, that breaks my heart because they yeah. just didn't give any forethought to apply, you know, like all the other things we've talked about today. It's, and some people will actually blame the consumers. They're stupid. They don't get me. No, they're not. It's you're not helping them get you. And so by not having a plan, they had a plan to write and record the stuff and then it just stopped there. And you've got to think of the whole picture. Um, number five, not budgeting for business costs, marketing, merch. Uh, let's talk about merch. Um, I wasn't surprised when you guys did the deal for Merchly. I remember the day you told me about it on the phone. I raised an eyebrow and I thought, man, Tony doesn't miss anything because <laughs> it was such a great, a perfect fit. You know, look, if, as the CD product matured and less stores and less stores and less stores were selling CDs, the majority of revenue from selling physical product was not coming from selling it on at Amazon or on CD Baby. It was selling it at gigs. And so we took a look and we're like, wait a minute. Okay, so we have 25% of the merch table now. What else can we do and can we offer to, to artists? And 
duh, t-shirts were the obvious choice. So, you know, we started we started Merchly from scratch, and we started with a different mindset than the other merch companies because we we come from again a, a space where we we sell a CD for a dollar and the artist sells it for ten, and most of the profit goes to the artist because frankly, the artist has the hardest job getting the client convinced to buy and to hand over a $10 bill, right? So we wanted to do the same thing. And if you look at sites like Zazzle, where, you know, if you if you order on-demand shirt from Zazzle, it's like $18. Um, if you do a small run, you know, and there's a lot, some other screen printing companies, it could be like 8 or $9. And we're like, it doesn't have to be that expensive. And so, you know, we said, we want to we want to be able to sell shirts for 5 or $6 so that an artist can sell them for 20 which is a, a reasonable price for a decent quality shirt all day long sell them for 20 you know you when you want to make it easy for fans to give you money right so 20 dollar bill 10 dollar bill these things are kind of easy transactions um and the the artist can make 75 percent margin um so you know that that that's that's why and how we got into the merch business we figured we've it's got to feel local we don't charge for shipping uh, we make it easy to buy most and i'm sorry to launch into my spiel here but i'm passionate about it yeah. uh most you know when you've if you've ever tried to buy shirts there's like you know 89 kinds of white cotton t-shirt so we've basically paternalistically somewhat said you know what this is the best plain cotton tea this is the best soft comfy tea this is the best tank top uh, women's tea and so on and so forth so that when you come to Merchley and you want to you want a hundred percent cotton tea we make it easy just there's the one pick your color give us the artwork and we roll I think that's so, great that you do that because I can't tell you how many times I've bought a t-shirt to support an act that I like or a cause that I like and the shirts suck uh, if you they're not sized well um, the cotton doesn't feel good um, the bottom hems come apart after the second or third washing. So the fact that you're curating the best shirts is, is appreciated. I hope that other people notice when they buy the product that uh, that the shirts feel good and fit well. As a matter of fact, um, we've got to do shirts for the Red Rally this year. I should get them through you. Um, I That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, the last time I did it, I think three years ago, I, I went to a local guy because I wanted to support a, a local merchant. They made it impossibly hard to work with them, and, and then they screwed stuff up. And basically, uh, their attitude was, "Hey, take it or leave it, Mac." You know, so ra rather do no, business happy, with happy. Cool. Um, I think everything else was pretty much covered in your stuff. I do have a question though about physical media for you. Um, the road rally, in particular. Uh, for years we've had people um, make their own CDs so that they can give, you know, put your three instrumental things on one CD, put your three best songs on another CD. So if you're in an elevator or standing at the bar or wherever and you happen to meet a, a music supervisor or whomever, um, you've got something you can give them. I, I've seen people over the years that they will give out a business card with, you know, their, their website on it, which is better than nothing. but. I think most people go back to their hotel room, look at the business card and go, meh, and give it a toss in the trash. Maybe they stick it in their wallet, look at it a week later and they get home, but I don't think that's a great way to go. So the question is, 
for a conference like the Road Rally, um, and when you're trying to get your music to A&R people, to music supervisors, to publishers, production music libraries, what do you think is the preferable preferable form of media to use? Is it a thumb drive? Uh, is it a, a card, you know, like a, a business card size flash drive? Is it still a CD? What do you recommend? Well, I think in terms of value for the money, the CD still trumps all. And I know there's a fear that what if I give somebody a CD and I don't have a CD player? But I can assure you, every music supervisor, everybody in the record label, everybody in the game, in the biz, has a way to play a CD. Um, so even if it's an old school disc man, right? Um, so uh, so you can, you know, a CD costs less than a dollar uh, to make by and large. And so it's really affordable. I think in terms of ease of use, I mean, thumb drives are awesome, but you're talking three, four, five dollars, you know, per thumb drive. So for, and, and, and by the way, we sell a lot of thumb drives and we have these really cool thumb drives that are, we call them a cassette USB uh, and it's, it's a cassette shell. And then the little dongle just kind of flips out and it's, it's a USB. Uh, it's super cool. It's got the old school look and, uh, but it doesn't have the endearing tape hiss. Um, <laughs> but it is remarkable, which we both know from reading Seth Godin's books. Being remarkable means one person remarks to another. Yeah. I, I've got to say, I've been given those cassette thumb drives, if you will. And, and yeah, I take it home and show Deb or show my yeah. daughters. Like, Check yeah. this out. It's so cool. So it's yeah. not going to get thrown away. That's that's correct. Um, so, they're, and, but they're, you know, they're, they're easy and versatile. Every computer has a USB drive. Um, so U, USBs, are, USBs are good. I mean, my, you know, we always had a saying, you know, um, artists buy for many reasons and we want to check off as many of the boxes on that list, right? That if, if there's, you know, and, and it's, it's, it, it's just a slightly different version here, right? Some supervisors may prefer a CD, some may prefer a USB, some may prefer just to, you know, hit a Spotify link. Um, and and so ideally, you kind of cover your basis and, and make sure, you know, if you have a CD, put your website on it or put a link to, you know, somewhere on it that people can also, you know, check it out online. I, I have taken to, um, <clears throat> because I, I like to travel light, people give me their CDs, um, and I will actually say, you know what, hold this, don't give it to me, and I take a picture of the cover, and then I, I say, I'm like, is it on Spotify? I'll take a picture of the cover, and I'll check it out online. Smart. Um, let's see, we're almost at the end of the show, but I think I have a couple more things. Um, oh, it's more of a comment than a question. I want to compliment you and your team. Um, you guys have, I think, hands down the best advice for touring musicians out there that I've seen anywhere. It's, it's concise, it's friendly, it's professional. It's, um, you feel like you're hanging out with a friend who really knows what the hell they're talking about. And your videos, um, the newsletters, all of it, man. You guys do such a good job. And I'm not pandering here. You, you, you know, 
I didn't have to tell you this publicly, but I want to because I hope that people on your staff get a chance to watch this and know that from somebody who really looks at that stuff critically, which we both do with each other, I mean, over the years, Tony is one of the very few people that could call me up and go, Lasco, what the hell? For years, he's like, Lasco, your website sucks. <laughs> For years. Um, yeah. So well, I really I, I appreciate, appreciate you. that. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's there's two uh, there, there's two angles there, right? For starters, we want artists to be successful. We want our clients to get ahead uh, because we feel that you know we have a noble mission to help the content creator, the artist, the author for a book baby brands to to kind of move forward and and you know and achieve a level of success that they weren't able to you know before they decided to work with us and so we we offer these you know kinds of advice and articles on the blog and, and youtube videos etc uh and newsletters so that artists can really have some valuable information that they can kind of you know consume quickly and and easily and um of course it's not all altruistic um you know having a newsletter having these kind of offers allows us in many cases to tell people hey we have a newsletter you know there's good content give us your email address and so that allows us to start a communication with them that hopefully by the time that they're ready with their next recording they say you know these guys at this makers they got some good stuff let me check them out i completely agree with that and think that anybody who is on the path to put out a, a new CD, a new album, whatever format they're going to put it out in, um, would be well served to spend an entire weekend searching the disc maker site, reading the blog, because I, look, I have very little time in my life and I will spend um, two hours uh, on your blogs on any given Saturday, you know, where I happen to get an email from you guys and it takes me to the blog. And every time I sit there, while, I'm so, while you're while you're in the John, right? Uh, maybe some <laughs> of the time. <laughs> I, I I do have um, quality weekend reading. I do have a library of stuff in the bathroom. I will admit to that, <laughs> and, and I do read for an hour a day. Uh, but Saturday is my day for sitting on the bed most of the time with my laptop, catching up on all the unanswered emails and little odds and ends that I should be doing for the company. And yeah. that's often when I read your emails and go to the blog and I sit there. I don't want to bother you on a weekend because I know how busy you are during the week. And I know I could. I mean, I'm sure you wouldn't go, God, I can't believe Lasco called me on a Saturday. But man, there have been plenty of times where I just wanted to pick up the phone and send some love your way. And, and especially so you can tell your staff, um, they write really well. Uh, they're hitting the right subjects. They're presenting the right information in the right way. It's literally getting it as right as can be. I think that they've set the standard. So please let them know that from me. Will do, definitely. Um, any final thoughts on booking shows and touring? Um, that's an area that most people are relatively clueless about. They want somebody else to do it for them. We've got three minutes left. If you were the Tony Van Veen from 30 years ago, um, what advice have you learned through your own company that you would now apply to your t 
touring and live performing life. Well, you're really you're really making me stretch back thirty years here, uh, Michael. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've personally been out of that space for so long. Um, the the main piece that I can offer is the somewhat conventional wisdom of, you know, become a big thing locally first, right? Don't try to stretch yourself, uh, but, you know, play local venue, play with other bands, you know, build your list, build your local following, you know, go from five to 20 to 50 uh, to 75, you know, talk to a booking, a booking agent and tell them, hey, I think I can bring 75 to a to a gig if you you know if you give me a give me a wednesday night slot um and 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 build that and then kind of go out in concentric circles um the concentric circle we've had this discussion uh when you and i did our uh a day of speaking in chicago one time probably a dozen or more years ago we i remember at dinner the night before we talked about the concentric circles and that is you know, five mile radius, 20 mile radius, 50 mile radius, 100 mile radius, until you're killing it within that radius, don't spread, but then just keep growing and growing. It's a, and it's a, it's, a, it's a delicate balance, right? You want to be big in your town, but you also don't want to burn out your fan base in your own right. town. Uh, so at some point in time, the frequency has to diminish a little bit uh, as you kind of go out. And, and it has to, as you go farther out, there's less time to you know, play your hometown. Um, so, but, but that's a, uh, you know, that, that, that's just kind of a common basic kind of blocking and tackling approach. To I think it was Brian Mazzaferi. I could be wrong, but I think Brian Mazzaferi told me that when they were growing their fan base by doing the concentric circle thing, that they actually promised people whatever their home base club was, um, let's say it was Philly and it was the club, the Middle East, you know, that they told their rabid fans that night, if you go to the show that we're playing in Trenton next week, wherever, um, and show us a, a Philly driver's license, we'll give you a free T-shirt for showing up. I thought that was such a smart move. Just something simple, but probably guy, effective. Guy's brilliant. You know, uh, he did this thing with USBs before streaming that was just phenomenal and I'm sure you've heard the story uh, where he he got these thumb drives he got 200 of them and he was selling them for $200 each and on the thumb drive he put all of his music that they ever recorded and the value premise of the thumb drive was and they would tell this you know he did this online uh, to the and to their email list Basically, we only have 200. If you buy this thumb drive for $200, you will get all the music we've ever recorded. You will get all the music we will ever record. And if you bring this thumb drive to any of our concerts ever, you will get in for free. Sweet. And that was such incredible value that he sold out in 48 hours. He sold 40 grand, 200 wow. times 200, in 48 hours, so fast through PayPal that at one point PayPal shut him down because they thought there was something fraudulent. 
<laughs> and so this, this this is look your creativity as an artist the tools are, are, are tremendous and and you know particularly with thumb drives i mean you know we sell thumb drives with 32 gig hard drives you can put videos you can put you know journals you can put photographs you can put all your music on there you can create a phenomenal experience for your fans with exclusive content that is not on YouTube, not on your socials, right? This is this is where look, I just started telling artists actually this is a little preview because this video didn't come out yet, but my my thing that I advising and it's coming out I think this in the coming week, advise artists is hey, you want to give your you want to sell more product at your gigs and give fans something that's truly special? Record a CD even if it's an EP with something acoustic versions whatever it doesn't have to be your top line hits and don't put it on Spotify and the streaming services and then when you're at your gigs you tell them hey we got something really special for you this is just for fans who come to our gigs our concerts this is not available anywhere else it's not available on social media it's not available on Spotify but we have EPs five songs five bucks only available here We'll be autographing them after the show. And I will bet you, you will sell more than selling the CD that's also on Spotify. I think you're absolutely right. That's brilliant. I love it. Well, my friend, um, great hanging with you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> conversation here. I know. Is anybody else here? Oh, yeah, look, there's an audience. Um, I can't see them. <laughs> oh, I've got them up in the chat room. Uh, I can see them. Um, and they're all saying great show. Thank you, uh, Michael and Tony. So uh, mostly Tony. Uh, so thank you for doing this. Um, please give my love to Freena and the kids. And uh, getting a little late now, a little close to the road rally to put together a fishing trip. Oh, forgot to tell you, I got invited to a reunion of all the Criteria Recording Studios people where I started my career. It'd kind of be like if you were no longer. Um, Are you going? Yeah, uh, and it's like three days before the road rally. So that's pushing me harder to prep the road rally well in advance. I'm going to fly in, go from the airport to the party, leave the party and fly home on a red eye. But it's been 43 years since I've seen these people. And it's like, you know, all these people, uh, we were all involved, like Bee Gees, Eric Clapton, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Eagles. Uh, and, and they really gave me my life the things that i learned from the guys that were five years ahead of me um i've never been able to give them a hug and say thank you because of what you taught me back then i've been able to take thousands of musicians all over the world and change their lives so you know this, this is another thing right mentorship in in life and especially professional life but not just professional life your children too right mentorship is so incredibly valuable and if you find somebody you know who can mentor you or who you can mentor because it's equally rewarding to mentor somebody yeah. as i think it is to be mentored uh, by all means you know grab onto that opportunity and do it absolutely sound advice thank you for this thank you for your friendship Same. um see you when i see you thanks for having me you all bet. right ladies and gentlemen mr tony van veen we will see you next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woo! See you, Tom.